is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Now, today's Country Hour might feel like the middle pages of an old school country newspaper. We've got comings and goings with a shock resignation of a Victorian grain grower from a national lobby group. But we've also got a Victorian wool grower who's taking over the leadership of his industry. We've got information for buyers and sellers of water, particularly in the Murray-Darling Basin, and a story from the courts. Now, all of these are huge decisions that affect the future direction of many of these industries and in some cases like logging bring about questions about their future viability we'll go through all of this together you can certainly take part send us a text 0467 842 722 to get in contact with us at the country hour right now though let's get some rural news with kelly hollingworth kelly good afternoon was an unusual cooking appliance is driving china's insatiable appetite for beef to new heights Traditionally a major driver of beef consumption in China was dining out at restaurants and takeaway, but COVID and other restrictions has forced more consumers to cook at home. Meat and Livestock Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Dr Verena Rooney, says the introduction of air fryers has more consumers cooking with beef. So more people have air fryers and are comfortable cooking beef at home, whereas in the past beef was typically something that was consumed whilst they were dining out at food service. So particularly in parts of Asia, culturally they've got different kitchen setups to what we have here in Australia. So some countries it's actually quite common for them to have like an outdoor kitchen or cooking area and, and, and not have an indoor facility or else they might just have like a really small little stovetop or sometimes, you know, just typically cook with a, a microwave, such as in Japan. The popularity of air fryers has, has been quite significant in those markets because it actually means that consumers throughout Asia are actually discovering new ways to cook sort of more Western-style food, so like a steak. And so it's really kind of opened up their cooking repertoire to expand to, um, yeah, sort of new different types of dishes. And it's been quite a, an interesting phenomenon for us to uh, observe. Australia's red meat processing sector is short of as many as 10,000 workers. At a recent innovation showcase in Melbourne, a range of robotic and exoskeleton devices were on display. Chris Taylor, the CEO of the Australian Meat Processor Corporation, the sector's research and development body, says he's confident robots will soon be able to fill the labour gap. Uh, but I get the sense that we're at a bit of a tipping point at the moment and we can see in different types of technologies that have been developed recently that time to adoption is really shortening rapidly. Uh, historically things like bandsaw safety equipment for example, we're talking about 15 years of development uh, in that type of technology but more recent uh, meat quality sensing technologies are only one or two years from concept to adoption. And so I think we're at a time now where the processing sector is really on the ball and able to rapidly adopt and you know, reap the benefits from those technologies. Large volumes of wool are expected to hit the market early next year, putting extra pressure on already depressed pricing. Shearing has been delayed in many areas because of the wet weather and lack of shearers, while flooding has also caused delays in getting wool to market. Kelvin Shelley, Victorian State Manager with the Australian Wool Network, says current wool offerings are significantly below where they would typically be. Yeah, I think at the moment we're seeing uh, limited offerings, like we're still in the 30, mid-30,000 range, uh, bales that is, nationally at the moment. Um, really, traditionally, we should be around that 45,000 plus at the moment. And 
um, shearings two to three weeks behind in most areas. Um, by the time that wool's actually getting to store with the amount of rain events we're having, um, we're looking at probably six, seven weeks um, possibly behind where we normally are. So leading into you know January, February, I would imagine that we're going to see a lot of wool in the market. And Western Australia's northern cotton industry has just reached a major milestone. The Kimberley Cotton Company has announced it's raised the required funding for a $50 million Kununurra gin. The venture is backed by the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility and several shareholders. The company's deputy chairman, Jim Engelke, says the gin will be a major boost for the Ords agriculture sector. For the industry to get to scale, we need to have local processing. For the last several years, we've been freighting cotton modules 3,500 k's and more in some cases uh, east to be processed in uh, gins on the eastern seaboard. Clearly that doesn't have a long-term future. You are limited by the amount of trucks uh, and you simply cannot freight that much uh, cotton out of here. And so it puts a cap on the area that we can grow. Having a cotton gin in the region uh, allows us to develop scale and the cotton gin has been built with scalability as a key part of it, so allowing us to grow the capacity of the cotton gin and grow the capacity of the production base feeding that cotton gin. And for today, that's Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Kelly Hollingworth, there with Rural News. That is wild, the idea of air fryers becoming so popular in China that it means they're buying more beef. Absolutely blows my mind sometimes. You can let me know if it's done the same for you. Send us a text 0467 842 722. Rain figures coming in thick and fast. Wet weekend at Myrtleford was 118 millimetres of rain. Everything saturated again, says Kevin. Spence says yet another 75 millimetres over the weekend on the weekend at Yarrawea. Again, that sort of Murray River country or the northeast hills, obviously, in the case of Myrtleford as well. Catchment's getting wet again. You can let us know if you've had a lot of rain too. We'd love to hear the figures coming in from you. Although we're going to talk about industry leadership right now because despite being re-elected less than two months ago, the chair of Peak Grains Organisation, Grain Growers, has resigned with immediate effect. Victorian grower Brett Hosking stood down late last week saying he no longer thought he was the best person for the organisation, with West Australian farmer Reese Turton taking over. Brett Hosking can join you now to explain the sudden change of heart. Welcome to the country out. Thanks for having us, Was You've resigned. Why? Yeah, step down. Uh, look, change in direction for me. Um, uh, you know, sort of nothing's happened or anything like that, but just... Uh, Maybe an opportunity to, um, you know, focus a little bit more on the farm and, um, you know, look at maybe for that next opportunity for me. Um, I've always loved working with growers and making a difference to growers and um, really keen to be in the best spot to be able to do that. What happens now to, to the organisation? When did you tell them you're resigning and who's taken charge? Yeah, so I resigned um, last week and uh, at that point um, they elected a new chair, uh, which was Reese Turton, or is Reese Turton, from um, a farmer from York in Western Australia. Uh, um, so, which is the first time uh, Grain Growers has had a West Australian chair. So, um, good for the guys in the in the West to get some, uh, or you know, to get that level of representation in their their local amongst their local farming community, I suppose. And that's effective immediately. Yes, yes, he's taken over from me um, yeah, as I step down. Yep. Why now? 
Yeah, look, I, I think, like I said, I've always had a passion for, for serving growers and, um, you know, hopefully that's come through uh, to the growers that I've interacted with. Um, I love nothing more than, you know, being out in com- local communities and engaging one-on-one with growers, um, whether it be little country um, senior sits halls and places like Menangatang and that, or whether it be, um, you know, at larger venues and that, and really love the opportunity to, to make a difference to the lives of, of everyday farmers. I think our grain farmers are some of the most amazing people we have in this country, and it's a, been a privilege to serve them. Uh, and I guess I was starting to reach a point at Grain Growers where I felt like that possibly wasn't any more the best spot for me to be able to, to make that the difference that I really wanted to make um, in their businesses. So it's time for a change. You were only re-elected as chair in September at the the AGM. So are you sure there's nothing more nefarious than, than that to decide to step down now? We're only two months after that. No, well, look, I think it's a, it's an opportunity for me to uh, to explore, you know, a different direction um, and maybe a, a way at which I, I can make a greater difference to growers. It's also, you know, an opportunity for grain growers to um, to be able to have, you know, some clear vision about what they want to achieve as an organisation. So why not make that decision that. in September? Look, I, I guess that back in December we were we were still on a, a I was still on a, a trajectory of where I, I wanted to go and what I wanted to achieve for growers, as was the organisation. And in in all genuineness, um, you know, that was my focus at the time. Uh, that's still my focus is making that that real difference for for growers. Um, it's just a question of whether grain growers is the best spot that um, that I could be making that difference. So it sounds like you haven't changed, but the organisation has. My passion for growers has always been the same, and um, I absolutely, as I said, I, I absolutely love growers. I just, um, I've had this privilege, Warwick, of meeting some of the most amazing um, individuals, uh, men and women, right across this nation. So, were you pushed in a direction you didn't want to go as chair of Grain Growers? Because it sounds like that the organisation had changed, and and you didn't feel like that was the best place for you to be anymore. Oh, look, it, look, it could be that, um, you know, my direction, my passion was was different to where the organisation felt it, it wanted to be. Um, but look, there, there, without it, it'd be fair to say there was certainly a, a difference in direction, but um, that's not to say grain growers. It's still, it's still a brilliant organisation and um, it's supported by brilliant growers who, who provide input into it to, um, you know, talk about the issues that are happening on their farm and in their businesses, um, in their lives. Uh, you know, it's supported by by a great team of, of um, staff who are really focused. Um, most of them, you know, metropolitan based, but they're still focused on achieving great outcomes for farmers and they do a, a terrific job at doing that. So, um, yeah, look, it, it's still a, a brilliant organisation. I highly rate it. But, uh, you know, for me, it's probably not the right place at the right time. So what was the issue that you didn't support? Uh- no, no particular issue. There's no, <laughs> no secret squirrel business or anything like that. Was um, uh, just you know, look for me. It's a, it's about the opportunity to focus on on what I love as much as anything else. Speaking about what's next for you, Brad Hosking, is there a, a position or is there a, a role within either industry or outside that you would see as the logical next step for you? Uh, well, to be perfectly honest with you, Warwick, right now I have got my oldest daughter. Uh, finished her last uh, university exam on Thursday last week. Um, she's, so, well, provided she passed that exam, she's now an agriculture uh, 
got an agriculture degree behind her and um she's right here on the farm with us now um you know in the shearing shed today actually while i'm here on the phone um you know and and i'm looking forward to the opportunity to take a harvest off and work alongside her and, and with her and um help be part of her future direction um i've also got another daughter finishing year 12 tomorrow so um you know that that opportunity just to be amongst them um is really exciting um two other daughters that I also love being around. So, um, uh, so that's my immediate focus. And, um, you know, maybe in the new year we'll, we'll have a bit of a think about uh, where opportunities are and where directions are, but I don't have any plan. Um, there's no nothing to be read into it about a, a secret plan to do anything. Um, it, it's purely just, um, you know, what you, you want to be – I've always said I wanted to be at grain growers as long as I felt like I was making the difference that that I felt was needed for growers. And, um, you know, when I reached a point that I, I couldn't do that anymore, then I, I thought it's time for a change. And um, and to be true to myself, that's what I wanted to do. Can you foresee a career in politics? Oh, no, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um you know who's, who's recruiting up our but no i don't i don't know that um uh, politics is for me i i really enjoy being on the side of politics where i can um point out all the problems but not be uh, responsible for the solutions uh, but um yeah look I, i've got no plans in in terms of politics um i think i might have missed a state election i think they're going to the polls uh, soon and um and we've just had a federal election so you know what, there's a long wait if that was my vision. Well, good luck with the harvest. Good luck to working with your daughter and also good luck to whatever the future holds, whatever that may be. Brett Hosking, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Warwick. I really appreciate it. For someone who doesn't have an interest in politics, she still talks like a politician sometimes. That's Brett Hosking, the former chair of Grain Growers Limited with immediate effect has stood down. Reese Turton, the West Australian farmer, has taken over the role at that group, that lobby group. We'll head to another lobby group now, talk about its future as well. Growing the wool market, rolling out electronic ear tags and improving the relationship with Australian wool innovation are high on the agenda for the new president of the lobby group representing the wool industry. Victorian farmer Steve Harrison has taken Taken over at Wool Producers Australia after previous president Ed Story reached a four-year cap on his time in the role. It's a position that has been difficult and highly politicised in the past, but Steve Harrison says the industry needs to come together to move forward. And I spoke to him a short time ago about his ascendancy to the role. Steve Harrison, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you, Warwick. Let's start with you coming into this position. It's It's been long held by Ed Story, and, and now you're taking the range of wool producers. So what do you want to do with this organisation? Uh, look, you know, Ed's been there for four years, and um, we have capped terms um, at wool producers. And, look, we've come a long way um, in in the industry, and a lot of it is um, thanks to um, Ed Story and Richard Halliday before that. Um, you know, unfortunately, the industry is pretty small now. I think it's only 0.6, 0.7 off the apparel market. Um, so, you know, the days of 180 million sheep and all the rest of it, um, we're that small. We've all got to work together now. It's that simple. Uh, is there anything in particular you want to see the wool industry doing now? You're uh, effectively the, the voice of one of its major lobby groups. Uh, look, traceability is a big thing going forward for wool and obviously for sheep and lambs and goats. Um, so they're probably the two main things uh, at, at this point of time. Um, we've got the Indian Free Trade Agreement coming up and you know, wool producers are 
been um, at the forefront of that uh, as well for wool. You know, EAD preparedness, you know, the scare and continued threat of FMD, you know, um, again, wool, wool producers and others have been at the forefront to um, get a way forward so we can get back into our um, trading situations with our other countries. You're a Victorian producer in a state that was let's say, at the forefront of EID programs for sheep, uh, the the first to legislate. Now there's going to be a national movement to, to move to compulsory EIDs for sheep producers. Do you think your experience will help with those negotiations and also implementation of that decision? Yes, definitely. And look, the other states um, have got the same same concerns that we had as Victorians five years ago. Uh, the benefit now is that you know the template is there um, that you know Victoria has set up. So you know what happens when you know there's fifty thousand sheep in at a yarding. Well, in other states, well you know we've been through it with Ballarat, Bendigo, and Hamilton. You know we're, we're sixty, seventy thousand sheep are there. And look, cattle did it before us. You know just one na- national system, all harmonised rules. The last thing we need is different rules for different states. Yeah, so you would like whatever the rules are to be a national program between all of the states? It has to be national and it has to have one database. It has to be harmonised for sure. That's going to be a big part of of you in this new role over the next few years, isn't it? Because I'd imagine that's where a lot of work is going to be required. Definitely. And, you know, we've got other states that are procrastinating or um, chasing new technologies, which is fine. But, you know, at this point of time, uh, Minister Watts suggested uh, January 2025. It's not going away. So we have to work towards that um, data, um, fortunately or even unfortunately. But we all have to be on the same page. And as I said, you know, Victoria's um, got the template there. Our our system may not be perfect, but with the other states' input, we can um, improve it all the time. And, yeah, it, it can be improved. There's no doubt. You're listening to The Country Hour. We're speaking to the new president of Wool Producers Australia, and that is Steve Harrison, of a farmer from Gippsland in Victoria. Steve Harrison, too, that brings me to the, the next thing to talk about, and that's the relationship between wool producers as a lobby group for the wool industry and the research, development and marketing organisation Australian Wool Innovation, which has certainly in previous years had a, a lot of political pressure placed on it due to its its actions and its dealing with growers. What kind of relationship do you want wool producers to have with AWI? Well, I think in the previous um, you know, four years, um, it has improved and you know, um, wool producers were out for dinner with AWI last night. Um, and even last week, yeah, all the industry leaders, AWI, AWEX, AWTA and the processors were all out to um, bid um, Ed's story farewell. So, again, the industry is rather small now. We all have to work together and um, I'll certainly be strengthening our um, relationships um, with AWI. And, yeah, <laughs> I've been around a while, I suppose, and um, I certainly know um, a large majority of them. So I'm probably well placed to continue that relationship. That, that's interesting to hear, though. So relations are a lot better than, say, during the the man in the mirror scandal and the and the other days of of questioning over over the chairman's actions at AWI. Look, we've come a long way, and um, yeah, we'll put all that behind us as, as we have done um, now. You know, there has been reform, and you know, it's up to um, myself and um, others in the industry to work as one for the benefit of all wool growers. The wool industry hasn't quite had the records, say, of other 
industries lately in terms of prices. We've seen record grain prices. We've seen record beef and sheep prices uh, over the last year or two as well. We've seen also record input costs uh, too. But what's the state of wool growing in Australia and what will it take to make it more profitable? Yeah, great question. I mean, I do have a fine wool merino stud, but I also have um, a coarse, uh, coarse wool flock as well. So will it cover the cost of shearing my um, crossbred enterprise? No, it won't. Um, and, you know, it's a growth industry, the, the broad wools. Um, have they been well represented in the past? Uh, with the current prices the way, the way they are, you'd, I'd probably suggest not. I'm not having a go at anyone, but, uh, you know, you'd reckon you'd be you could see the coarse wool industry was expanding. It's, uh, you know, as as the um, shedding breeds are expanding, we have to make it as profitable as we can for the ones that are still involved, and that that's an issue going forward for all of us. I mean, we rely on one market, as we know, just as well. We do have that market in China. Uh, without them, geez, it'd be a whole different landscape. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about your industry at the moment, isn't it? You've got pressure, say, land pressure from from farmers going to other industries, but also from within sheep producing itself with, with shedding breeds becoming more popular. Is that part of your role to to try and show that there is value in continuing in wool production? Definitely. I mean, um, yeah, and the first thing that comes to mind is the shearer shortage. I've been affected, well, I am affected by that. My contract is um, retired, so that's been real handy. Yeah, and all we can do at the moment is, you know, encourage AWI to continue um, training more shearers, the up-and-coming up and coming young shearers. And um, yeah, my role at home is, you know, facilities are up to scratch, learner schools and all the rest of it, just to try and get more people um, into the shearing industry. Um, hopefully encourage everyone to stay in the sheep because unfortunately, with respect, I'd hate to be a cropper at the moment with a high input prices you know we've got to diversify um and sheep certainly have a role to play there well it's been good to talk to you welcome to the job and uh we hope to to see where it goes from here thanks for talking to us thank you work that is steve harrison the new president of wool producers so we've had one victorian farmer leave a national group uh representing grain growers but we've had another victorian farmer uh ascend to the top of the lobby group representing wool growers in the country um We'll have to follow it from here. It's 26 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Let's talk water right now, though. The Federal Water Minister says she's received approaches from irrigators keen to sell their water licences back to the Commonwealth. Last month's federal budget showed a confidential sum has been allocated to buy water entitlements from irrigators in the Murray-Darling Basin this financial year. Now, on Friday, a Senate estimates hearing at Parliament House heard that Basin ministers had agreed that almost 50 gigalitres would be purchased as a matter of priority. Here's the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, explaining. Uh, Strategic buybacks mean we're going to look across the Murray-Darling Basin system and where there are um, areas where we can have low impact, good value for taxpayer dollars, Uh, water buybacks then we're going to examine those opportunities and I can tell you we've had uh, a number of unsolicited approaches already. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that when we go into the market for those um, strategic buybacks there will be people who are interested in partnering with the government to see that water returned to the environment. I I mean it seems crazy to be talking about this at the moment when there's so much water across Mm. the system and in fact so many people are suffering from too much water, towns flooding in the case of Lismore third time in 15 months but we know that Australia um, 
you know, in time, we'll be back in drought and we've got to use this opportunity, this breathing space we've got now to get the Murray-Darling Basin plan right. Now, that's Tanya Plibersek, the Federal Water Minister. Friday's estimates heard strategic buybacks would happen across New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT, not Victoria, as a matter of priority to meet a 49 gigalitre bridging the gap shortfall. That's 46 gigalitres of surface water, so that's irrigation channel type water and river water, and three gigalitres of groundwater, water from underground. Shadow Water Minister New South Wales Senator Perrin Davey says the decision to buy water will hurt farmers farmers and communities. Uh, they've identified 46 gigalitres that needs to be purchased. They've commenced discussions and they've actually um, worked out how much per valley needs to be recovered through that 46 gigalitres. Now, this was not in the Ministerial Council communique, uh, but it has now come out through Senate estimates that um, they're looking to get out there and buy back water now. So 46 gigalitres, uh, it's been described as bridging the gap. Can you just explain what that is? So this is the remaining water recovery. If everything else in the Basin Plan falls to where it is, under the uh, baseline water recovery. So this is not part of the 450 that uh, Minister Plibersek has been focusing on. This is completely separate to that, but it is required to finalise the sort of 2750 part of the basin plan. So 46 gigalitres, it doesn't really sound a lot in the context of, you know, a plan that's recovering... Um, more than 3,000 gigalitres, that's including the 450. Are you concerned that it could be, it now looks like it is about to be purchased from irrigators? Yeah, look, 46 gigalitres doesn't sound like a lot, but when you put that on top of the over 2,000 gigalitres that has already been recovered through the basin plan and when you take into consideration that they're talking about buying it back and not looking at efficiency on farm efficiency or any other efficiency regimes this is 46 gigalitres that will come off the consumptive market that will impact on temporary water market prices that will impact on permanent entitlement prices for remaining irrigators make no mistake this is 46 gigalitres that will hurt that is Senator Perrin Davy talking with Kath Sullivan. If you want to know where the water's going to come from, in groundwater, the government says it'll purchase it in the condomine alluvium. The remaining surface water, so the irrigation water, the channel water, was expected to be purchased across seven catchments, from, including 14 gigalitres from the condomine Boulogne, 1.6 gigalitres in the Barwon Darling, 5.1 gigalitres in the New South Wales Border Rivers, 0.9 of a gigalitre in the Lachlan, 9.5 gigalitres in the Namoy, and 10 gigalitres of water in the New South Wales Murray. Also in ACT, 4.9 gigalitres of water to be brought back there. If you want to know why Victoria wasn't included, a spokesperson for the Victorian government said the state had not agreed to strategic purchases and saying, I quote, Victoria has not agreed to strategic pur purchases to meet its basin plan objectives, noting that Victoria has delivered all our basin plan obligations to date, including bridging the gap water recovery. Strategic purchases are therefore a matter of for other basin states. Kath's written a lot more on this online. If you'd like to have a look at it, go and search for ABC Rural, abc.net.au slash rural. You can read a lot more about that there. We've got the weather on the way, plus your texts with rainfall figures. Uh, if you want to get that in quick, 0467 842 Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Courtney Howe today. Good afternoon, Courtney. 
Good morning, Warwick. Police are re-examining the disappearance of Christopher Jarvis in southwest Victoria 16 years after he failed to arrive at work. The 38-year-old's burnt-out car was found in Warrnambool on the morning of June the 13th, 2006. Police at the time said his vehicle had been set alight under suspicious circumstances. The father of three has not been cited since. Police have not yet shared details about why they have reopened the case. The Melbourne to Adelaide Rail Corridor is closed after this morning's freight derailment west of Geelong. Dozens of containers have been smashed and damaged after derailment between Inverley and Jeringham at half past five this morning. No one was injured and the Australian Rail Track Corporation says the Interstate Rail Corridor will remain closed while response crews and emergency services are on site. Misinformation about flood expectations in the New South Wales Victoria border town of Wentworth have been clarified after Mallee Catchment Management Authority confirmed their Murray River flood map was designed for use within Victoria. Wentworth Shire Council says New South Wales SES does not have any mapping that reflects expected flooding for their region. Council's Acting General Manager Simon Rule says the mapping does not rely on levy bank information on the northern side of the river. Vic Forest says they are reassessing their entire program following court orders last Friday. The Supreme Court ordered tighter restrictions at logging coops to protect two species of native gliders. Many logging operations have since stopped as Vic Forest analysed the impact of the new regulations. CEO Monique Dawson says workers and contractors who have been stood down are receiving payments. And there will be more support for those experiencing family violence with a new service beginning in Shepparton today. Family Advocacy and Support Services provides legal and non-legal help, such as housing and finance, to those impacted by family violence and is being rolled out in regional Victoria for the first time. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Was Thanks very much for that. Courtney Howe there with regional news headlines. You're, you're going to hear more on that logging decision shortly on the country. Our Peter Somerville is going to join you to take you through some of those details, so stay tuned for that. On the weather front, a lot of text coming in. Rain, four-wise, uh, 87.5 millimetres in 48 hours, says Alec, Alex at Savanac. So Again, that's sort of that southern New South Wales, but again, very much that Murray Corridor. 21.5 millimetres over the last three days for Barry at Kyabram. Warwick, 48 millimetres here at Bolgana over two nights, uh, making it challenging for tr- to, in trucking stock to market, says Chris. I bet, Chris. Thank you very much for that bit of information. Kevin, you're still on top, though. 118 millimetres of rain at Murderford, which is amazing because Kevin had missed out. I think on a lot of the the big rainfall figures, even though Myrtleford up in and around the hills uh, over the last few major events, but certainly copping a whack this time. You can let us know how you've fared. 0467 842 722 to send us a text. Let's go to the Bureau, though, to find out what the uh, official forecast is saying. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology is Michael Efron. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon, Mark. How's it looking around Victoria today? Yeah, pretty wet again, although... uh not seeing the totals that we saw uh, overnight, so over the last two and a bit days. Uh, we've seen 144 millimetres at Mount Hotham, 133 at Talandoon, 118 at Osborne's Flat, 115 at Falls Creek, so really focused over that uh, northeastern uh, part of the state. Yeah, the hills are copping it. Absolutely, and um, not surprisingly, we've got um, lots of uh, flood warnings out, too many uh, to go through, but uh, a focus uh, through the north uh, again. There is a, a major flood warning for the Kiwa, uh, and then of course still uh, for the Murray 
uh, through the northwest uh, towards uh, Swan Hill Mildura region, uh, and then uh, quite a few uh, moderate flood warnings uh, out, even into uh, some southern catchments such as the Werribee uh, River. So. Uh, pretty wet uh, over the last uh, 24 hours, especially uh, in that northeastern uh, area, but also down uh, near Ballarat and through the Mornington Peninsula. But uh, in terms of conditions at the moment, we do have uh, sheep graziers warning out uh, for most districts with uh, colder conditions developing showers across uh, most districts as well. We have just recently seen uh, some lightning uh, just southwest of Swan Hill, so uh, there is some instability there as well. But uh, in terms of rainfall totals for the rest of today, uh, with that activity, generally around 5 to 10 millimetres, uh, locally up to 15. So, yeah, not as heavy as overnight. But in terms of temperatures, looking at the high teens or low 20s, although uh, along the southwest coast, uh, really looking at uh, the mid-teens there. We do start to see southwesterly winds picking up throughout this afternoon uh, as well, so it will actually feel uh, a lot cooler. And also uh, some snowfalls starting to develop across the Alpine Peak uh, <laughs> later today. So we do see that colder air mass uh, moving over the state uh, late today and then for Tuesday uh, moves across uh, southern parts in particular. So we're looking at... Uh, a winter's day on Tuesday with south to southwesterly winds quite strong. Um, snowfalls down to about 800 metres elevation. Local hail and thunder in the south. And those temperatures around 13 to 17 degrees, only 11 at Hamilton and Ballarat. And those winds are pretty strong, so it will feel a lot colder. But then uh, conditions slowly ease uh, as we head through the rest of the week. So Wednesday, still a few showers, uh, especially in the south. Temperatures to start the day around 3 to 7 degrees. Snowfalls above about 1,000 metres elevation. Otherwise, temperatures around 13 to 17. Thursday, we should see a shower or two in the south, but it will tend to clear into the afternoon and evening. Dry across the north, still a cool morning, but then top temperatures of around 17 to 21 degrees. And then on Friday, we see a high moving Across Tasmania, so looking at really settled conditions, another cool start to the day, but then mostly sunny skies, temperatures in the low to mid-20s, fairly light winds. So Friday looks like the best day uh, this week if you're after dry and sunny conditions. But then on Saturday, we do see another cold front entering the west of the state during the afternoon and evening, freshening northerly winds ahead of that, temperatures in the mid-20s for most areas, even the high-20s in the northwest, but showers and isolated thunderstorms uh, with that change, 5 to 15 millimetres across western and central parts by the end of Saturday. And then Sunday we see that change pushing across the rest of the state, a lot cooler as well, temperatures back in the mid to high teens or low 20s, west to southwesterly winds, uh, further 5 to 10 millimetres possible over southern and mountain parts, perhaps 10 to 20 across the east. So... Uh, so not as significant. Yeah, next weekend's rainfall not as significant as what we've just had this weekend. Is that fair enough to not say? Not quite. I think it, it looks like, I guess you'd call it a regulation cold front, so not, not drawing down uh, this tropical air uh, from the north and uh, a fairly fast-moving system as well, so does limit the potential for those higher falls, but still I think the eastern, northeastern ranges could pick up some 
slightly higher falls, but uh, it, it's, yeah, not looking as heavy as what we've seen over the last 24 to 48 hours. But one other thing to mention too, air's looking pretty cold with that system, so Sunday into Monday we could see further snowfalls across the Alpine peaks. And, and Michael, this is a question without notice, but um, Billy, who's on Twitter, got 53.5 millimetres of rain near the, the border region of Victoria in South Australia on the weekend, but he's put up a photo of some ninja hail, as he's calling it. So it's not like a ball of a hailstone. It actually looks like a, you know, uh, almost like a ninja star. I think that's where it's coming from. I actually think one of the, the hailstones almost looks like a seahorse. It's quite sort of spread out. Is that unusual for, for hail? I actually, yeah, I actually saw that, uh, that tweet. Um, and asked Billy where exactly that was uh, from. But um, I haven't seen hail like that uh, myself uh, either. That's um, really uh, incredible shape. So, yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is unusual to see um, such a, a shape. But, um, yeah, it's just been a, a crazy uh, spring across, uh, or not just Victoria, but much of um, eastern Australia with... Um, with everything from um, odd-shaped hail to snow, uh, damaging uh, winds, um, and, of course, uh, the rainfall as well. Yeah, and I'm at the point where I'm not suggesting any other wacky weather event could happen because it just might, so I don't want to be feel like I'm responsible for that. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for that, and thank you for... for um, uh, yeah, humouring my curiosity by seeing that tweet at least and, and knowing it looked as weird to you as it did to me is almost a comfort. Thanks for that. No worries. Thanks, Warwick. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Michael Efron, taking you through the full forecast there. It is a weird bit of hail. Uh, Billy, we'd love to chat to you a bit more about that if it comes up, but we're going to move away from weather and talk logging, talk the timber industry next on The Country Hour. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's go to a court decision and its possible effect on the timber industry now. Workers in Victoria's timber industry say they were dealt a blow on Friday with their ability to operate curtailed by a Supreme Court of Victoria verdict. Our reporter Peter Somerville has been following this case and he can tell us more. Peter, welcome back to the Country Hour. What can you tell us? Thanks, Warwick. Good afternoon. Um, so this case was brought by two volunteer-run environmental groups. They're King Lake Friends of the Forest and Environment East Gippsland. And in the Supreme Court last week, Justice Melinda Richards ordered stricter rules for Vic Forest's operations um, after she found that the government-owned agency broke the law by failing to adequately protect the yellow-bellied glider and the endangered greater glider in Victoria. Uh, so this all essentially reduces Vic Forest's ability to log in areas where these gliders have been detected and it also imposes buffer areas around the gliders. Um, so lawyers representing environmental groups in the case say that there is uh, still some room for logging to continue under these new restrictions but contractors like Chris Stafford who has operated in Gippsland's Central Highlands for 20 years uh, say that it will affect the viability of their businesses. Uh, well, yeah, it's put our whole industry in limbo big time. We're um, not sure how we're going to go, whether we'll be able to operate under these new rulings or um, what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's a major blow to the industry, the, the decisions this judge has made. Whether they're right or wrong, we're not sure. But um, we've just got to wait to see what happens and see the fallout of it with Vic Forest and the government. 
Yeah. Is potential that that ruling could be as much as 40% uh, of uh, the sorry 40% of the area will be what you will be available to be to be logged 60% protected. Is that a viable scenario for you moving forward? Do you think, given uh, what you know about your work? I think any logging's viable. Yeah, it's a sustainable industry, so um, you would hope Vic Forest will be able to find a way around it and, yeah, keep supplying timber to the communities, the local mills, and, um, yeah, keep us working. Can you tell us a little bit about your individual operation, where, where you're based and, and what your uh, logging looks like? Uh, yeah, I work so the Central Highlands, which is all north of New G, uh, around that area. So I work in mixed species and ash coops. I've got a contract for 10 months a year with Vic Forest, employ about 12 people and um, yeah, we supply APM and all the local mills um, with timber. Yeah. Have you been in conversations internally within your own, uh, I suppose your own, with your own staff about what's been happening over the last couple of days? Is it affecting things in the short term? Oh, definitely. Holding on to staff and that through these times is pretty hard because of the uncertainty of it and stuff. So um, you just try and keep them informed and let them know the info as it comes through. That's logging contractor Chris Stafford speaking there with Oliver Lees. Uh, Peter Somerville's with you, our reporter. He's taking us through this case and what the decision means for logging. And, and Peter, has there been any further reaction to this decision? Yes, so Warwick, as you've just heard, um, not uh, particularly welcomed by the contractors, but it has, however, been welcomed by the environmental groups involved in this case. Uh, King Lake Friends of the Forest President Sue McKinnon said uh, that the orders, and I, I quote, uh, give the greater gliders some hope. Uh, Sue says it's in terrible trouble. Its population has crashed by 80% over 20 years and it's gone from common to vulnerable to endangered in six years. End quote. But uh, as you've heard there, uh, the industry takes a different group. Uh, and, and timber groups met on Friday in Terelgan to discuss what this means to them. Um, at that meeting was Carly Porteous, the general manager of the Australian Forest Contractors Association. She says that contractors will need to exit the industry and that the government should bring forward financial assistance for those who have to go. Well, what came out of the meeting was frustration, uh, anger, and, um, and concern, especially mental health concern for these forest contractors and what their future looks like, because right now it's extraordinarily uncertain. The, the contingency plan probably exists in the current uh, Victorian forestry plan, which is something that we certainly do not endorse. Uh, we don't endorse the closure of this industry, but you know there are packages in there that we can and we will be lobbying for the departments and the governments to bring those packages forward to give these families and these businesses a whole, a whole lot of financial relief because right now uh, we do know that their houses are riding on uh, the, the equipment that they have financed and there's not too many businesses that are in that sort of vulnerable state. So potentially more money from Vic Forest, say, to, to give a chip in for these, for these workers out in East Gippsland? Well, certainly more money from the Labor government uh, for these businesses in, in East Gippsland. The, um, the VFP and certainly the, the budget that was put forward um, by the Minister back in December 2021 is really insufficient uh, to compensate these businesses for the losses that they're going to uh, endure over the next few months. So prior to the decision on uh, Friday last week, there were already eight uh, Vic Forest contractors that were stood down. 
We now have an additional 11 contractors that have stood down, but the uncertainty goes across all of the contractors in that particular re region. Uh, and I really implored the government to really consider uh, not just the Greater Glido in a lot of their decisions, but you're, you're talking about communities, mental health of men and women in this industry, and those that are fifth fourth, third generation, um, they, you know, they really are proud of what they do. So I really implore the government to consider all these things and in, in how they might respond to these sorts of uh, litigation cases in the future. That's Carly Porteous there, the General Manager of the Australian Forest Contractors Association. And Pete, this case has centred around Vic Forests and, and their role in this. Have we heard from Vic Forests yet? Yeah, we have. We heard from their CEO, Monique Dawson, earlier today. Uh, and we should note here as well that this comes at a really interesting time for Vic Forests. It's a government-owned organisation and the government is in caretaker mode ahead of the election, so it's not really the time for those sorts of organisations to be having big um, changes in strategy or direction. But Monique Dawson said uh, Vic Forest was determined to not lose any of the workforce that they have in place, that stand-down payments are in place for those people. Um, let's hear a bit more of what she had to say. That will make a lot of areas that we had planned um, to harvest in the short term um, really unharvestable um, at the moment because the amount that's left will be too small and we won't be able to get through the buffers to get the gear in. Um, so what, what's happening at the moment, and I really do apologise to um, the, the, the people in the towns that are affected by this uncertainty, is that we have to rebuild our entire program. So we have to go through all the areas that we planned up according to the actual instructions of the regulator and the code of practice and the rules that have applied. Um, and that includes the very special rules, comprehensive rules that we put in place after the 2019 20 bushfires that were formally endorsed by the regulator as meeting all of our legal responsibilities. So we've planned all of our operations under the rules set by the regulator, endorsed by the regulator. And now with the court order, we're going to have to take a different approach and that will take time. Uh, that was Vic Forest's CEO, Monique Dawson, there. And uh, Warwick, uh, we should note as well that we don't uh, definitively know if Vic Forest is planning to uh, appeal this decision just yet. Um, certainly some parts of uh, the decision and the verdict ran to, I think it was around 170 pages, so quite a lot for everyone to get their heads around here. We'll watch this space. Peter Somerville, though, thank you very much for taking us through this case and, and where things stand at the moment. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warwick. Peter Somerville there uh, taking you through the lo latest logging court decision. This on the text, though, says, When the sawmill workers lost our jobs, we got absolutely nothing, says that on the text line. You can keep your thoughts coming through. Always happy to get them here on the Country Hour. Let's have a bit of fun now before markets, though, when things are usually going wrong on the farm. Sometimes it's not a bad idea to share your stuff-ups with others because that's when you find out other people's stuff up too, right? That's the thinking behind a competition the Patchewallock Pub is running, asking farmers to share their best stuff up this harvest. Photographic evidence is required to, and it's printed out and stuck up on a whiteboard in the bar, which sounds awesome. Publican Belinda Notley says her and husband Eric wanted to do something to lift farmers' spirits. Well, we wanted to find something a bit of fun. We've had lots of wet weather and lots of rain and lots of paddocks that are full of water and all the farmers are sort of struggling a little bit with trying to get harvesting and that started and so we thought we'd try and come up with something a little bit fun to um, lighten up the, the downside of it all I guess so we come up with the oh, 
won't say the word, the first F up um, competition. Let's, so, uh, let's uh, ABC, let's call it the best stuff up uh, over harvest yep. just for the purposes of this. Yep, yep, sounds good. So we thought we'd start a competition and make it a bit of fun. So, you know, encourage everyone to take photos of their encounters and maybe make it a little bit light-hearted. If they take a photo and send it in, it might make them feel a little bit better that they've had a bit of an incident. Yeah, and then we've got a, um, well, we normally have a cutout party in December, so we're calling it the Not Quite Finished Cutout Party because um, we don't think anyone will be finished, but we thought we'll draw it there where everyone there and we'll have a big vote and whoever's got the worst muck-up will um, win the prize, first, second and third. So it's been positive. I only started it yesterday and it's been positive so far. I've got lots of photos coming in, so it should be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, I noticed lots of comments, lots of pictures, uh, numerous pictures of machines bogged. Another one where yeah. the um, the reel on the the front had fallen off. It reminded me of that Clark and Door skit. Uh, the, the front fell off, but funny stuff. Belinda, someone as well, they'd commented and said they, they reckon they they'll be in the running for first prize, second prize, and third prize. <laughs> so <laughs> young, lots of banter there. Young, yeah, he's a young local. He's a lovely, lovely boy. And um, yeah, he's a little bit accident prone. He's a funny character, and yeah, he probably will get first, second, and third. <laughs> and I suppose that's a that's an endearing human trait to be able to to make a bit of fun of yourself. Oh yeah, and he's so lighthearted about it. He just yeah, he's he's, he's a lovely character, and he's yeah, he works in his family business, and he is very funny. He often comes in and tells you stories of things that he's done, and just laughs, which is really nice. And and I guess Belinda, for you, for yourself and and for Eric as publicans. You do probably get a pretty good read on on what's happening out there and the, the challenges that people are having and the, the stuff ups that they are dealing with. Uh, talking to them. Oh yeah, every night you know they come in. And there's lots of talk, and, and that's where all they all get together around the bar and you know have a quiet ale and talk about what's going on and how much rain we've had. And we actually have a bit of a joke every time they come in now when it's raining, and they'll say, "Oh, we've had twenty mils, and we've had five mils," and then my response is, "Oh, we've had a hundred mils," and they all just look at me and laugh and think I'm crazy. Just to lighten it up. And I suppose, as, as you were touching on as well, when things are going wrong and it feels like the world is against you, sometimes that can be a bit isolating. But I suppose having that that pub community and also this, this competition, to, uh, I suppose that they, they're reminders that, that if, if things are going wrong for you, they're probably going wrong for other people as well. Absolutely. And it's a good forum that they can talk about the things and give each other advice and it's quite interesting. We've learnt so much just in this short time with, with you know, when when half starts and, you know, how things have got to look and we'll have to drive around and we're like, oh, that's not looking right and, you know, I think we're a bit professional now. <laughs> we're not. <laughs> that's Belinda Notley from the Patchewallock Hotel speaking to a very diplomatic Angus Verley uh, about the best stuff-up competition that pub is running. Oh, I think in this year that's going to be mighty popular. To market, to market. We've got a few to get through today. Let's start with Packenham Cattle. G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers increased to 1,210. That's 240 more with the usual buyers operating not all fully. 
In a cheaper market, quality was good with more finish throughout a larger selection of prime cattle. Cows sold 25 to 50 cents cheaper with processors loading cows for an estimated 575 to 763 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 10 cents. Vealers sold from 500 to 610. Yearling trade steers 500 to 556. The heifer portion 440 to 508. Grown steers 475 to 500. Bullocks 460 to 496. Heavy grown heifers 426 to 460 heavy Frisian manufacturing steers 344 to 390 the crossbred portion 394 to 478 most light and medium weight cows 174 to 325 heavyweights 290 to 418 heavy bulls 356 to 416 this is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Let's go to Wagga and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 2,700 cattle sold to the usual buying group. However, not all feedlots were operating. And the market did fluctuate over all categories with buyers trying to find a base price. The market weakened for feeder steers, 20 cents or more in places. Trade cattle were 10 to 15 cents cheaper with the exception of veal. The pick of the veal, $5 to $5.54. Trade heifers four fifty to five twelve. Trade steers four ninety to five fifty. Feeder steers medium weight four sixty to five fifty. The lighter weights four ninety to five seventy four. Feeder heifers four fifty to five ten. Lighter weights to five sixteen. Heavy processing steers sold at four forty to five fourteen. Bullocks four dollars to four eighty. Cows suffered a price correction of twenty to thirty cents. Heavy cows three forty to three eighty five. With one single pen to four twelve. The Antax MLA. Few softer prices around today, it seems. Let's go to Mortlake in the cattle market there. Chris Agnew has the details. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers rose by 224 to 732 at Mortlake this week. Grown and yearling steers and heifers were back by 5 to 10 cents a kilo. Manufacturing steers softer by 10 cents and cows lost 30 cents a kilo. Yearling steers and heifers to the trade made between 455 and 558. Grown steers and heifers making between 420 and 510 cents. Feeders paid to 520. Manufacturing steers made between 330 and 440 cents. The general run of beef cows were making between 300 and 395 cents a kilo. Cows back to the paddock 272 to 330. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. We'll go to the sheep and lamb market reports now and off to Bendigo and Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Slight dip in numbers to 20,000 lambs and 8,600 sheep. While there was 20,000 lambs here, take out the stores and half-finished trades and there wasn't a lot of truly fat slaughter lambs available. It meant the lead suckers above 26 kilos still sold reasonably okay at 217 to a top of 250 at 750 to 800 cents a kilo. Where the market was more fickle was on the plainer trades with the 22 to 24 kilo suckers varying from $154 to $197 depending on finish and breed type at around $700 to $780. Store lambs 18 to 20 kilos averaged $137 to the paddock and the lighter 16 to 18 kilos $127. Sheep also 10 to 20 cheaper. Big crossbred used 130 to 156. Merino used to 156. Most mutton 110 to 130. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Jenny. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour. I was remiss earlier and I should have mentioned there is still that major flooding 
warning at Bandiana on the Kiwa River downstream of Mongan's Bridge. A lot of information there online if you need to find that. Major flooding also along the Murray River downstream from Barham to Benjaroop. A lot of information there if you need. Also evacuation warnings currently in place of parts of Albury and Moama on the New South Wales side of the Murray River. Water really doesn't discriminate when it comes to that border regions. It goes out both sides, so be safe wherever you are, and that will continue for some time to come. That's it for the Country Hour today, though. We'll be back with you at the same time tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. It's one o'clock.